Well, good morning again. So glad you're here. If you have the Bible this morning, I encourage you to grab it. We're going to be flipping around a bunch today, and so you can just join me in that. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible right there in front of you, in the pew in front of you. But we'll be flipping around, so it'd be good to join me in that. But we're here in an Advent uh, series that we're calling Christmas Creed. Uh, Creed, uh, or credo, is the Latin for I believe. And so a creed is simply anything that you believe in, or a statement which kind of articulates that which you believe. And so what we're doing over this Advent season is we're taking different Christmas passages, passages that we read all the time, but we're seeing it through the lens of what we believe. We're actually taking Christmas uh, passages because Christmas, the stories of Christmas in the scriptures, actually affirm and build up these historical things that we believe as Christians. So using these different Christmas passages, as well as our own statement of faith, the Randall uh, statement of faith, it's, it's a creed. It starts with a bunch of I believes, and so it's, it's a type of creed. It's a statement of what we believe. Using these resources, we're going to go through over this Advent time just a, a reminder, uh, if not an education, on what it is we believe, what it is that historic orthodoxy, which just means right belief or right thinking, what we believe about our faith. Sometimes we just need a refresher. Sometimes we just need to go back. Sometimes we read those words on the page and we go, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, I believe that. We don't even know why or the significance behind these statements. So last week we looked at the Holy Bible, which is the first heading in our Randall Statement of Faith. And today we're going to kind of move on. We're going to kind of work through our Statement of Faith understanding in light of Christmas what it means for us to hold on to these central truths that we believe in. Today, the next heading is God, which is a little intimidating. Like, let's talk, let's talk about God. Well, here it is. From our Randall Statement of Faith, under the heading of God, it says this. We believe in one God, in one God eternally co-equal in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you're a member of this church, you have agreed to the creed. You've agreed to this idea that there is this God. I believe in this God. He is one, and yet he is co-equal in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, these first words in the Gospel of John A passage we read often in Christmas goes like this, and you know it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With God and was God. Which kind of seems contradictory. What what do you mean with God and yet was God? How can the Word be with God and at the same time be God. But that is exactly what we believe as Christians. We believe in one God, eternally co-equal in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in the with and was of God. The with and was in God. Somehow totally one and yet separate. Different people, different functions. And Christianity is the only major religion that makes this claim. 
One scholar puts it this way, to explain it and you'll lose your mind, but to deny it and you'll lose your soul. To explain it, it'll blow your head off. But to not to deny it, you will lose your soul. So friends, in the next few minutes, I'm going to try to explain it. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Let's start with this. Historically, one of the terms we use for this concept, this idea, is the Trinity. The idea that God is one and yet three equal people. And let's start with the oneness of God. Let's start with the word was God. This idea that the word, which is is Christ, he was God. Let's start with this oneness idea. And actually, every time I preach, I have a stand and we affirm this idea in that prayer we just prayed, the Shema. When we say, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Like I've said over and over again, this is the central prayer of a Jewish person. They pray this often, if not daily. This is the central thing. When, when someone asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He quotes the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now the word alone here is a good Hebrew word called achad, which is fun to say. You get to get that guttural in there. It means achad. It means alone, but it also can mean one. And so sometimes when you hear a Jewish person praying this prayer, you'll hear them say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. It's the central uh, uh, kind of glue that holds the faith together. The ancient Hebrews were rigorously monotheistic, believing in only one God, which was in direct conflict with most religious systems at the time. The Hebrews came out of Egypt who had an assortment of gods with different jurisdictions and different demands and different temperaments. Sound exhausting? Try to worship in that system where one God demands one thing of you and another God demands another thing of you and you don't know, sometimes they contradict. Now what what do I do? As opposed to that, the Hebrews claim, no, 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 at the central of our faith, this idea that God alone is one God alone is one. Alternatively, alternatively, the foundational belief that God is one is also then seen throughout the Old Testament. There are many examples, but one here in Zechariah 4. Zechariah is prophesying about the day when the Lord would restore everything fully. And he makes this claim in Zechariah 14. He says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord And his name, the only name. We hear that theme over and over again. And this bedrock belief has endured. Jesus was being questioned by the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And they asked him, if you are the Messiah, it says in John 10, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly, what are you saying? And Jesus answered them, I did tell you, but you do not believe me. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones 
to stone him. That sounds a little harsh to me. Like, what did he do to deserve a stoning? They say, are you Messiah? And Jesus says, hey, I've, I've proved it already, and you just don't see because you're not, part of, you're not part of the flock here. But I and my father and one, and immediately they're like, all right, where's the stones? It's time to stone this guy. Why would the Jewish opponents feel the need to stone him? Was it really that bad? Well, to them, what Jesus was doing is he was seemingly denying the central distinguishing element of their faith that God was one and that God cannot manifest himself in any other way, surely not human, and still claim this oneness. It doesn't work in their system. It doesn't work with how they've always understood God. You and the Father cannot be one. That is blasphemy. And for that, you deserve to die. To this day, one of the biggest barriers for Je- for, to Jesus being the Messiah for Jews is accepting that God is any less than one. This is actually one of them, even to this day, one of the major stumbling blocks for Jews. Even though Jesus has fulfilled so much, and you can point to it, they can't break this understanding that how could God be anything less than one? And yet Jesus is God. And it's seen throughout the scriptures, which gets us to our second point. We saw the, the wasness of God, the word was God, but somehow, mysteriously, he's also with God. There's, there's a distinction, there's a, there's a difference to this God. We simultaneously can say Jesus, along with the Holy Spirit, is with God and was God at the same time. This is why we read that account of John uh, earlier uh, a few minutes ago. Because John actually testifies to this. He sees this testimony of, of God coming down and yet he is manifested in three distinct people. Again, G, uh, uh, John the Baptist says, I saw the Spirit come down. The Spirit. He's talking about this thing as a distinct thing. Not the Spirit of God or just sort of something that kind of moved around. No, there was this thing, this real distinct thing that came down. The Spirit came down from heaven as a dove and it remained on Jesus. It says him, but it remained on Jesus. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. There's that third. So there's this other person. So you have this Spirit. It's coming down. It's, it's a distinct thing. It falls upon Jesus, another person, another entity. And then John says, and I knew that was the guy because this other person told me what was going to happen. The Father speaks, the, the Spirit descends, and the Son receives. We see three distinct people here, and we see it over over again in the New Testament. If you've got those Bibles, flip on over to 2 Corinthians. We're going to take a little trip around the New Testament letters here for a minute. See how this plays out. Because we see this, uh, this, this threeness coming into play over and over again. In 2 Corinthians 
in chapter 13. It's the very last chapter in 2 Corinthians. The very last thing, some of the last words Paul wanted to get out. In fact, the last words that Paul gets out in this little letter. He writes to the Corinthian church and he says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, one, and the love of God, two, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, three, be with you all. It's like he lumps this together. He's trying to show that there's this distinctness to these three, that they do different things, they have different functions, they have different roles, and yet together, together the grace of it comes and rests upon each of us. Just a few uh, chapters to the right in 1 Peter. Flip on over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1. Now in 2 Corinthians, Paul ends the letter like this. This is how he kind of wraps everything up as a way to bless the hearers of the letter. In 1 Peter, he actually starts with it. He leads with this idea. In 1 Peter 1, the very first lines of the letter, he writes, the elect, to the elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedient obedience to Jesus Christ, the sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. We see it again. All three are mentioned. All three are doing different things, and yet they all are combined together into this one essence that are doing it together. Finally, a few more chapters to the right. Let's get to the book of Jude. It's the second last book. Very small, probably one page, because it's only one chapter long. But right at the end of the Bible in Jude, and the only chapter in Jude. So we've got Paul, who writes it to end the letter, and we've got Peter, who writes it to begin the letter, and now we have Jude, who only has got one chapter, and so he makes sure he gets it in again. But in Jude, verses 20 and 21, he says this, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit— Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. All three are doing things, all things have roles, and yet they're working together to bring about this eternal life, this faith, this love. They have different functions, different roles, different distinctions, and yet they are one, and they are all affirmed as divine, working together in complete harmony. Try to explain it, and you'll lose your mind. But try to deny it, and you'll lose your soul. Now, throughout history, there have been different attempts to try to explain this reality, this trinity that seems so bizarre and, and uh, counterintuitive. How can one thing be one and three? And so many attempts have been made to articulate it and to describe it and to illustrate it. 
probably one of the most famous attempts to articulate it, was in the Nicene Creed. Again, creed meaning an I believe statement. The Nicene Creed was finalized in 381 AD, and it was written by a group of early Christians attempting to articulate God in relation to these three divine persons. So the whole thing starts off like this. Again, how do you articulate something so divine? Well, they attempted to do that. 1,700 years ago. And it starts off with, I believe in one God. That bedrock foundation. We're not a polytheistic religion here. These aren't different gods demanding different things from me. No, no. I believe in one God. The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, they write. Of all things visible and invisible, And I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Now the word consubstantial is just a a fancy word that means made of the same substance or essence. It's, It's something that's made from the same stuff. They're saying that Jesus was made from the same stuff as God himself. Distinct, and yet one God, and yet there is a Father Almighty and a Son. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. This isn't any lesser, this isn't a sort of a, a step down. No, it's one true God coming from one true God, begotten, not made, God did not make Jesus. God did not create Jesus. Consubstantial with the Father. Jesus is made from the same, they're both made from the same stuff. And then it goes on. A little later it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adorned and glorified. So the Spirit is also Lord, it says in the statement. The Spirit is also Lord who proceeds, who comes from, proceeds from the Father and the Son, and also deserves adoration and glory as divine himself. This is how a group of guys, 1,700 years, tried to articulate this, to try to make it clearer. Any clearer? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe helpful a little bit. So if 1,700-year-old statement of faith may not be too helpful for you, many have observed an analogy from the scriptures that might be better. Marriage. Now hear me out here. In Genesis 2, we read about a man and a woman who are to leave their households and to cleave together and to become one flesh. Now the word one there in that passage is the word Achad. They are to become one. These two distinct people. It's a union of two separate entities becoming achad, becoming one. A marriage is plural, and yet it's singular. We're one thing, even though we're made up of distinct parts, distinct people. We have a rule in our house with our kids. Because our kids will try to do this, and I don't know if your kids try to do this, but they will go and they will ask one of us for something, 
And if they don't like the answer that one parent gave, they'll go and ask the other parent the same question to see if they'll get a, a different response. In our house, that's a big no-no. You are not allowed to do that. We catch you, you are in trouble, right? My little Micah, he, does, he likes to do that. He does, can I have a piece of candy? No. Go over to mom. Maybe she'll, she'll give me a better answer. You are not, that is a big no-no in the longhouse. You are not allowed to ask the same question to both parents looking for the answer you want. Any other, any other parents? Is it just us who do this, right? We have that rule because Molly and I are one. And so mom's answer is my answer. And my answer is mom's answer. And if we have to conference, we'll go and do that, but we will come out with a unified answer because we are one. Our, our marriage is one. Don't ask the other person because you're going to get the same answer from them. Or if you don't, you're being sneaky, and we will conference, but we come at it. We, we have one voice for our children in the relationship. And yet, we are different people with different functions, different gifts, different convictions. And we don't squash that reality ever. Have you ever been to a wedding, and sometimes they do this with the candle, they call it a unity candle, right, where there's two candles kind of on either side that are lit, and then there's a bigger candle in the middle, and then during the ceremony at some point, uh, each of the, the two, each of the couple, they'll, they'll take their lit candle, and together they'll light the unity candle, right, to kind of symbolize this, this union, this kind of one fleshness, this idea, right? Have you seen this before? They, they do the, the unity candle. But often when they do that, I'll watch them, they'll extinguish the, the individual candles. And I understand what they're doing. They're saying, like, we've become one now. But I always wince a little bit every time they extinguish the candles. Because they didn't squash who they are, right? They didn't extinguish their personality and their distinctiveness and, and the reality of who they are. Yes, they're, they're one flesh now, but that doesn't mean that we then just kind of mash them together into a singular humanity, you don't conform into one single entity when you get married. There is certainly that oneness, but there's also a distinctness that's good as well. It's this weird mystery of multiple and yet unity at the same time. But wait, there's more. Because in many situations, the husband and the wife then come together, that unity, that one fleshness comes together, and life proceeds from them. Life comes from that unity. A baby is born. A baby proceeds from them. And it's made from the same stuff. They're you, and they're not you, right? You go, man, look at that. They're you, and they're not you. They're you, and they're not you. You look at them, you go, I know that face. But you're your own animal, aren't you? You've got your own personality. You've got your own distinctiveness. And yet, somehow, you're made from the same stuff as me. And so a marriage, a family, 
becomes this beautiful picture of this mystery about the very nature of God. We are one, and yet we're different. And the beauty behind that is stunning. The with and was. Try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. But try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. But wait, there's more. Paul takes this idea of marriage, this mystery of how two people, along with others that then proceed from that union, this idea of oneness and threeness, he tells us, he takes that idea, and then he tells us in Ephesians, he says, in this same way, let me go further now. We've been talking about marriage here in Ephesians, but now let me tell you this. In the same way, husbands, you ought to love your wives as their own bodies. There's that, that one fleshness idea. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one chad, one flesh. This is a profound mystery. This threeness and oneness, it, it, it blows your mind. This is a profound thing. But what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about, it's like Paul really wants to spell this out. This whole marriage thing, this profound mystery of, of two becoming one, of, of multiple proceeding in a unified but in a distinct way, loving the others as themselves. It's a mystery. It's an illustration. It's a picture of something bigger. I am talking about the church, he says. See, the church then becomes the ultimate collection of distinct people who unite as one to reveal the very nature of God. That's what we are doing here, friends. We gather together as distinct people, unified in a mysterious way in order to reveal to the world the very nature of this same God. They will look at our church and say they are completely united. They are completely one, and yet... Their individuality is not distinct. There is not extinguished in the process. They are multiple and yet mysteriously singular. We are a distinct people with different functions, different gifts, and different convictions. We see this throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12 says this there are different kinds of gifts but the same spirit that distribute, distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. We have different gifts. We have different services. We have different workings. We don't mold ourselves into one humanity here. There's distinctives. And we have different convictions, and that's okay too. The Bible actually encourages that. In Romans 14, Paul talks about it. He says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another's whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. He's accepted both of them. 
One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. There's differences. And that's okay. And the Bible actually affirms that and celebrates that. This is good. Different gifts, different workings, different convictions distinctives. Do you know what it's called when a group of people get together and just mold into one mind? A cult. That's the very definition of it. Is when you join a group of people and you lump into one group think and there are no differences, no distinctives and one person at the top tells you that's not a church, friend. That's a cult. And the church is not a cult. We celebrate and we reveal to our world the threeness of God, the multiple of God in our gatherings. And yet, we are one body. Remember that old, uh, I've mentioned this before, remember that old uh, uh, hymn, uh, and they'll know we are Christians by our love? Remember that song? I've said this before, but my parents used to sing that to my brother and I when we were young, when we were fighting. They would literally sing that in the car rides, and we hated it because we knew, we knew that what we were doing did not jive with the faith we were professing, right? And my dad would smirk and he'd sing. But the chorus is just as good. The, or excuse me, the, uh, the verses, they're just as good. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, and we are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity will one day be restored, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We reveal who God is in the world, both in our distinctives and in our unity. Jesus says this at one point in, later on in John. He says, listen, you know how the world is going to know who I am? Is your unity. Not your sermons. Not your wonderful theology, as important as it is, and that's why we're in this series. As, as much as they are going to know who I am by the way you love each other. And the way you are unified together in spite of your differences and not to cover up your differences and your giftings and your workings and your convictions and all of that stuff. In, in the midst of that, you will be united. And everyone will know who God is because they will look at this mystery that is the church that is both multiple and singular at the same time. Something the world has no idea what, what that looks like. The world knows how to be singular. The world knows how to be multiple. The world does not know how to do it both at the same time. And so we come together as a church. We are revealing, and we do it well, we are revealing the very nature of God himself. I think Paul sums it up well in Romans 12. In verses 4 and 5, he says this, Just as each of us has, has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. The with and was of God. Try to explain it, you'll lose your mind.
but try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. Let's call the band back up as we reflect on this. We believe in one God, eternal, eternally co-equal, the one God, eternally co-equal in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, friends, these creeds, these beliefs, these statements of faith, these affirmations, they're not just something we mentally believe in. They aren't just meaningless dogma. They aren't just some words on a page. They are the very rhythm of our lives. And to deny it is to deny the very nature of God. When we deny the threeness of God, and we do it sometimes, we deny the threeness of God is when we require uniformity, when we don't listen to individual needs and hurts, and when we tell everyone just to get in line. We deny the very nature of God, the threeness of God. And we deny the oneness of God when we're unable to lay down preferences, when we gossip and judge, and when we jump ship when things get uncomfortable. With and was. Try to explain it and you lose your mind, but try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. You see, friends, the task of the church is to reveal the very nature of who God is to the world. And the world looks at how we live together and gets a picture of who God is. These are not just meaningless words on a page. They're the very rhythm of lives. We believe in a God co-equal in three persons. One God in many, in three. And then we live that rhythm out for the world. Can I address the elephant in the room? This COVID thing isn't going away, is it? At least not quickly enough for us. Some of you right now are wearing masks and some of you are not. The question is not who is right and who is wrong. The question is, how would Randall Church display the nature of God in the midst of COVID? That's the question. How are we, friends? What are we going to do? How are we going to reveal the very nature of God to a world that knows how to divide or knows how to groupthink? They know both of those, and they have no idea how to do both. So what are we going to do? We believe in a God who is three, and so we will listen to different perspectives and affirm different gifts and be attentive to different convictions. We do not demand that everyone conform into a singular entity. Those are not churches. Those are cults. but we also believe in a God who is one. Even when we disagree, and even when it's hard, and we, even when it's not my preference, we believe in one God eternally, co-equal in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Try to explain it, and you'll lose your mind. But try to deny it, and you'll lose your soul. 
And this is displayed most notably in communion. So if you have that communion cup, grab it if you would. In communion, in common union, we come together and we say, despite our differences, despite our different convictions, our different gifts, our different workings, our different callings, we come around a table to declare we are one in the spirit, we are one in the blood, and they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they will know we are Christians by our love. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, it is is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Friends, we have the one loaf. We have the one Lord. We have the one Jesus that brings us together. So let's together in our differences, together and our different convictions and giftings and calling, let's partake together. Start with the bread. Jesus took the bread and gave thanks for it, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat all of you, for this is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper was over, he took the cup and he gave thanks for it. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Pour it out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, may we continually be asking, Holy Spirit, may we continually ask, Father, may we continually be asking in this space, how can we reveal your very nature to the world? What would you have us do to affirm the beauty of your threeness and the beauty of your oneness? Because we worship a with and was God. And on this Christmas, that with and was God comes down to earth to be with us. And then says, go and do it too. We love you, Jesus. Show us the way. In your name I pray, amen.